So hello. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Today, we're joined by author Bobby Jean Huff, who will be reading to us from and talking about The Ones We Keep. Bobby Jean, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Anytime. So we're just going to jump right in. And so I have to ask, can you tell us a little bit about The Ones We Keep? The Ones We Keep was sparked when I was taking a walk at a resort. I have four children and... It occurred to me that maybe if one of them died, I might not know which one. And I thought that might make an interesting book. So, no. so that's what I did. I, I kept it in my head for like 10 years. I didn't do any. I wrote a short story. And the New Yorker said it was too too long. And, and then I said, okay, well, then, you know, nobody wants it. I'll put it away. And then 10 years later, my husband said, why not lengthen it? And I had always wanted to write a novel. So this is what I started with. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So can we hear from the book, please? Yes, you can. I'm going to be reading a couple of pages. And this is after Olivia, my main character, is told that one of her children died, but not which one. Uh, she boards a bus and leaving her family in Vermont, walks out of her life, returns to her family home in New Jersey. And when she gets to New Jersey, her family is still in Vermont, but she goes through each of the children's rooms and picks out a memento from them. And she's thinking, she's thinking, when exactly had it happened? While she was walking along the path through the trees, thinking about how happy she was, how her life seemed all of a sudden to have achieved perfection or the closest thing to it. Did it happen when she was eating her sandwiches, drinking her cold tea? or lying asleep on the flat rock beneath the sun, as if she hadn't a care in the world, as if she alone had been singled out by God or fate or good fortune for a future untouched by grief or blame or loss. And how, how had it happened? Was he, her nameless dead child, left alone in the cabin? Did he slip out the door and walk by himself to the lake? Was he in the water with the other children, playing with the plastic toys, and attended to by a lifeguard who in a split second while he bent to scratch his ankle, perhaps, or turned to greet the pretty girl he was hooking up with after work, failed to notice when a small boy slipped beneath the surface of the water and didn't come up. If some god or evil force had chosen that particular ending for her son, he couldn't have accomplished it more brilliantly. Olivia thinks about the various components that needed to be assembled in order to achieve the goal to deprive a child of his life. There was the timing of her own walk, which was, of course, dependent on the weather. There were the choices by the resort of that particular babysitter and that particular lifeguard. There was the timing of the tennis match between Harry and the accountant from Cleveland. And Olivia could only imagine his story. Perhaps he could only play at 10 because his wife was wanting him to accompany her to the little tea shop in town where she'd spotted the previous day the most precious China dog. Olivia stares up at the ceiling. If she stays here long enough, if she remains in this bed and in this house, She will eventually find out what happened and who it happened to. She remembers her Sunday school teacher saying once, you're only given what you can bear. At the time, Olivia had believed it, but now she knows how wrong her teacher was. Sometimes you were given more than you can bear. And if you are, can you be faulted for taking the only course of action that you can see? For trying to save yourself the only way you know how? Couldn't a tragic death be so life-wrenching, so cataclysmic, 
that the manifestations of ordinary grief, if any grief could be called ordinary, are unavailable or impossible. In the street, a car door slams, and a moment after that, the doorbell rings. The cabbie, Olivia thinks, and throwing the quilt aside, she opens the window and shouts down. Then she goes back to her own room where she pulls a large suitcase from the closet, and after filling it with as many of her clothes as she can, she stuffs in the three items belonging to her children. She feels beneath the jewelry box on her dresser and finds, with relief, five $100 bills. Moments later, she's back in the cab. As the cabbie pulls out of the driveway and proceeds down the street, Olivia closes her eyes tight to keep herself from looking back at her receding life. Wow. So, you know, I was thinking the title is such a gripping title, The Ones We Keep. And then, um, and I was seeing that the original title was The Children's Corner. That's Can right. Talk to us a bit about like what caused the title change and what that made possible with a new title. Sales and marketing. <laughs> Turns out you can write every single word you want in your book, but you, you, you don't get to title it. I do like the title of the ones we keep, but I have to say I do prefer the children's corner. I chose the children's corner because I'm a pianist and it's a, a collection of pieces, the children's corner written by Debussy. And one of the pieces in there I love and play. And, and I thought it was appropriate. It's about children, young children and old children and uh, and dead children, the children who live in the cemetery next door. So, wow. yeah. So then, um, so then that was the original title. And then did the publisher say we have to change the title or did you decide, OK, no, I'm just going to change it? No, no. The publisher said sales and marketing has another title for you. It's called The Ones We Keep. I think they had another couple and the one that I could choose from and the ones we keep, I thought it sounds appropriately enigmatic. Maybe it will make somebody say, what does she mean by that? And by the book. Yeah. Marketing, sales and marketing actually is, you know, a thing in, in a publishing company. So you, you know that probably, right? Yeah, um, I do. But, you know, I don't think I realized that the title could be changed in that way. I know that like a lot of the, you know, a lot of the content sometimes, and of course that goes through editing and the cover decisions and kind of who gets to make that decision. But for some reason, I I think I always thought like the title would be, you know, the one absolute. So. No, sales and marketing could have called it the Holy Bible. (laughs) I would have said to have gone with it. Hey, that would have sold a lot of books. <laughs> Could you imagine? You get credited as the author who wrote the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. So could we have another reading, please? Sure. This section occurs years later. My main character, Olivia, is out of the picture in Vermont, although we visit her from time to time. And her husband, Harry, is bringing up the two remaining children who get older. And this is when he dies. The death scene of Harry, father of Brian and Andrew and Rory, and of course, Olivia's former husband. Time plays funny tricks on the dying. Sometimes it speeds up like a train that's pulling away from the station, just as you burst through the gate, ticker in hand, and it hits you that if you'd arrived a mere seconds later, you'd be on it, bound for that place you always yearned for, for the place you just knew would change your life from something ordinary to something so exquisite you can only guess at it. Dang, if only the phone hadn't rung on your way out the door. 
If only you hadn't forgotten your keys and had to run back in for them. If only you'd remembered that Montclair Road was closed for construction. But sometimes time seems to grind to a halt so that you, the dying person, can lose sight of how long you've been in, in this particular state, in this particular bed, in this particular room. Nor can you recall how long it's been since you've seen the face or heard the voice of another human being, or for that matter, heard any sound at all, except for the beeping above your bed that tells you that you still barely inhabit this world. How is it that no one has figured out that you might like to be in your own bed for such a momentous event? There's surely nothing anyone can do for you here. But really, in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter. If you keep your eyes closed, you can imagine you are home, in your own bedroom and in your own bed, where you slept with Olivia, such a brief time you had with her, and later with Tony. Oh, why hadn't you loved her more? But it's difficult to think about all of this now. As a matter of fact, you're having trouble thinking at all, at least in any systematic, sequential fashion, with one thought leading to another. Earlier, you heard the boys talking. Brian was saying, I can't understand the thing he says. And Rory responded, yeah, it's like he's on a different plane. The boys, your boys. And now you feel a pang in your heart. And as you reach for it, you manage to catch hold of another thought. Regret that you'd worried so much about Brian and so little about Rory with his insatiable need to please everyone. You could have helped him. That thought evaporates and you realize that your boys are right. You are on a different plane. Your thoughts are all jumbled up, but they're wrong if they think you can't feel them. Why, really, your feelings are so much better than thoughts. They're almost pictures. Right now, on your back under the covers, the image you see is that of your mother. She's wearing a purple hat and laughing. Her bingo hat, she'd always called it, but she wore it everywhere. To ladies' teas, to supper bridge club, to mass, and of course to bingo. She appears to you clear as day. As a matter of fact, you can tell from the way her lipstick has been applied that she's had a few. She was so full of sorrow those last years before she died. She couldn't fathom going on without your father. But you knew her sadness had also to do with the fact that you had renounced your faith shortly after you met Olivia and you'd stuck to your guns. You refused a church wedding, even though you knew how much it meant to her. She'd been so convinced on her deathbed that she'd never see you again. But here she is anyway, and not a minute too soon, so close that you can make out the crucifix that has always hung from her neck, the tiny Jesus with his arms outstretched, the palms of his hands pinned to the cross. You twist your fingers together and with a huge effort manage to make a thought. You'd like to summon a priest, but it's too late for that. You can finally feel yourself going. And besides, it doesn't matter. It's just silliness. All the same, though, and just in case you trace with the thumb of one hand onto the palm of the other, the four points of the cross. Oh, how beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. So my last question that I get to ask. Okay. So the book spans 30 years. It took three years for you to write. And I'm really curious what that process was like and how you took care of yourself while writing about potentially traumatic and or painful scenes. Well. That's a lot of question, that is. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that parts of it were very hard to write because, of course, if you're writing a novel, I mean, it's you who's writing it. So you gather your information from everywhere and, and you gather it from your own life. So there were parts of that. My my grandmother and my mother not not wanting to have a church wedding. That was part of it. I didn't have a child who died, thank goodness. The hard part of writing the book, 
I think, was the lack of confidence that I had. I'd wanted to write a book for a long, long time, a novel. I'd written a lot of other things, but never a novel. So I decided that when I reached my 70s, it was about time to start. But I didn't know how to do it. So I thought of the, I had this story that I had written years before. I had the beginning and I had the end. And it's not exactly a matter of filling in the blanks, but it's knowing where I was going, knowing where to start and knowing how it would end made it easier. It enabled me to create scenes. I think of a book that's on a continuing, an emotional continuum, kind of like music. You lead up to a, to a climax in music. Well, with a book, a novel, that is, you lead up to an epiphany. And on your way to your epiphany, you have a lot of little epiphanies that are directing you to that top part. And that was hard. That was hard to do. So every day I would sit in my chair and I would think, what do I want to convey in this chapter or in this section? And I would pretty well guess what I would want to convey, but how to do it. So I would maybe, I'd maybe be sitting in a restaurant and and I'd hear somebody in the next table saying, oh, I like your hat. And I think, oh, that's a nice way to start this next scene that I'm having. I'll have my two characters, one saying, oh, I like your hat. And the first draft was the hardest. Mm. It's easier for me to, to perfect the words, which I did day and night. And as far as taking care of my concern, myself is concerned, I wasn't very good at that. I, I work day and night. I work all day long. And then in the night before when I'm in bed, I'm reading my Google notes and I'm changing words around because it's easier on my phone, actually, to edit on my phone. You can see you can see better where where you should do better with only a few words. And then in the middle of the night, I make wake up and think, oh, I know how to fix that scene. I know what I want my character to do. And and I think to myself, I got to write an email because I've learned before that if I don't write an email to myself, and so sometimes, sometimes in the morning, I wake up and there are all these emails telling me what to do with my characters. A lot of them I can't even understand. X's and <laughs> I'm not sure if that answered your question, but it does. And you know, it amuses me that um, that is through email that you email yourself and even still you're like wow I wonder what I said whereas for me I write notes for myself sometimes and I'm going I cannot read this I have no idea what I meant so yeah. I see that technology won't necessarily <laughs> solve right. that exactly exactly yeah uh, could we have our final reading please sure the final reading is this this section mirrors the prologue but it goes on from there since Olivia arrived back in Vermont after her child died, she went, as I said, she went down to New Jersey, but then she went back to Vermont and moved into a place near where the resort was, where her child was killed. And during the course of the book, she takes a daily walk to the resort, thinking to herself, I have three children. I have three children. So this is chapter 20. And as I said, it mirrors the prologue, but it goes on from there. It's threatening rain, but she never minds about the weather. Mostly she walks just before dinner, but today, because Alex is bringing his daughter for her piano lesson, Olivia decides to go earlier. Grabbing an umbrella, she lets herself out the door and sets off as she usually does, walking, walking, faster and faster. I have three children, she says out loud, three children. She repeats the phrase over and over, the beat taken up by her feet pounding the hard earth, one, two, three. 
The woods are silent, as they often are on hot summer afternoons. All she can hear are her footsteps and the murmur of waves lapping against the rocky shore. She rounds one bend, then another, until the path narrows and she reaches the bend, where she stops, gazing across the lake to the resort on the opposite shore. Today, there's no one in sight. The rumble of thunder that began when she left home is getting louder. A bird along the shoreline gives a plaintive cry. Olivia doesn't linger. She never stays long. It's enough that she comes every day, as she has for years. It's enough. After a final look at the deserted dock, the motionless trees, and dark water, she turns back. At home, she pours herself a glass of water and takes it across to the cemetery behind the church next door. When she reaches the marker of the seven ward children, she sets her glass on the grass and sits with her back against the stone, watching as bolts of lightning streak the sky. It begins to rain. Sometimes when she sits here, Olivia thinks that Mary Ward was the luckier woman. She lies over by the fence, carried away 17 months after bearing the last of her children. The insertion of a mosquito's proboscis into her flesh had taken her. Ague, her stone reads, and beneath that, she delighted in the Lord. Here in the graveyard, Mary's children are more real to Olivia than her own three. It seems that proximity is everything. She can almost see Mabel in her white lawn dress, playing with a lump of dough while her mother rolls out a pie crust. She can hear the twins, John and Ezra, as they careen down a snow-covered embankment, shrieking as their sled picks up momentum until it's virtually flying through the thin, cold air. And she can imagine in their turn, Francis and Tom and Matthew and baby Nancy scattering chicken feet in the pen beside the barn, or after a hot summer's day, dancing barefoot in the rain. Occasionally in the night, Olivia is awakened by a giggle or a scream or by someone calling out, Mommy. It used to distress her. Now she just smiles. She doesn't know whether it's Brian or Andrew or Rory or one of the ward children. Perhaps it's none of them. Perhaps it's some other child, a lost child or a former child, a present child or a future one. Because the call is never repeated, she believes that the child, whoever it is, has found its way home, or she assumes that it has. There's no proof one or another. The lightning flashes again, and the spatter becomes a deluge. I have three children, Olivia says, as she walks back to the house through the pouring rain. So where can we buy the ones we keep? Well, of course, there's, you know, the big A. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I've been told that most independent bookstores have it or can order any one of them can order it indie indie bound is one online that will direct you to your nearest indie bookstore mine happens to be labyrinth in princeton i guess a lot of communities still have independent bookstores i'm happy to say so no trouble ordering from them i think hopefully (laughs) wonderful Thank you so much for being our guest. It's been such a treat to hear you read and to talk to you. Um, I've really enjoyed having you. So thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it too. And all the best to you, Yvonne. Good luck Uh, with the program.